to the Justice and War in American History podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Ray Haberski. War has long been an indelible part of America's story, shaping national identity, values, and principles. The experience of war has transformed the lives of each generation. And because of this, it has historically elicited impassioned debates and conflicting perspectives. This podcast aims to explore this history by bringing together a diverse range of voices, veterans, active service members, citizens, and scholars. Through our conversations, we will consider the ways in which war has shaped and reshaped notions of justice. In the process, we will engage with broad themes such as duty, heroism, suffering, loyalty, and patriotism. Our broad framework during this season is to compare and contrast the histories of the Spanish-American, Philippine-American, and Vietnam Wars, wars that had a profound effect on the people of the United States. The National Endowment for the Humanities has generously provided funding for this project, making it possible to have conversations about the effects of war on American veterans, their families, and the generations who bear witness to conflict. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Justice and War in American History. Today, we're going to be looking at gender and the experience of war, and I'm very excited to be uh, joined by faculty members from a couple of other universities, and I'm just going to have them introduce themselves to get us started, just like all of our episodes. So, Heather, would you mind getting us started? Sure. Thanks for having us, Jason. I'm really, really glad and excited to be here. Uh, I'm Heather Stirr. I'm a professor of history at the University of Southern Mississippi and co-director of the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society. My areas of focus include women and gender in the U.S. military. Um, I've written about women and gender in the Vietnam War um, and uh, going into the late 20th century, uh, but particularly just kind of very interested in issues of women, gender, and conflict. Thanks, Heather, and thanks for being here. Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Amy Rutenberg. I'm an associate professor of history at Iowa State University. And my area of research is uh, also at the intersection of war and gender. I've written on masculinity and the draft in the United States between World War II and the Vietnam War. And I'm currently working on a project that looks at the effects of peace activism on America's all-volunteer force since the Vietnam War. And thank you, Amy, for being here. I'm, I, I told you both when we were getting started, I'm super excited about this episode uh, because I heard both of you speak in our training sessions. And so I'm hoping we can learn a little bit about uh, your research uh, as we go along. But just to get us started, you know, the topic today is gender and the experience of war. So maybe the best way to start this conversation is asking you both about why the history of why do you think the history of gender is important for understanding the American experience of war. Heather, you want to dive in or you want me to take it? <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, I think one of the, one of the issues is that gender is so central to how Americans, and I mean, I would say we could take this into an international context too, but focusing on Americans, how Americans have chosen to define who fights, who is allowed to fight. Um, and that image has typically has been, and it, it's changed at different points, but in one going farther back, it's a, a white heterosexual male, you know, then African-American black men are in, integrated into um, the forces. So then it's, but, but then since then it really has it's been a kind of a, a, a heterosexual male, even as we have integrated women um, 
and LGBTQ personnel into the military, that image still has kind of staying power. And so I think that's one of the reasons why gender has been significant um, to our understanding of, of U.S. conflict. And I think the listeners need to understand that war and gender have been mutually constitutive over time. In other words, our ideas about what makes someone masculine or what makes someone feminine is related to the ways that Americans and everyone else, but the way that war is fought. Um, What is valued above other traits, um, how we make decisions, like Heather was saying about who gets to serve, but also how those folks are expected to behave, to present themselves, to interact with each other. Um, A lot of that comes down to traits that have been defined as masculine, toughness, physical strength, um, you know, heroism, all of these things that, that get defined as something that belongs to men over time. Yeah, thank you both. Um, you know, I started us off talking about why the history of gender is important without actually asking either of you to talk about what gender is. And so, you know, both as, since both of you are historians of gender, maybe you can talk a little bit about what do we, when we say gender, what do we mean? And maybe secondarily, how have historians tackled that question of gender over time? How, how have our views of gender kind of developed as historians, maybe even over the past few decades? Sure. So the way that I describe this to my students when I teach this, I, I use the uh, example of when I was uh, expecting my children. And people would come up to me and ask me all the time, do you know what gender the baby is? And the answer is no. I knew the sex of the baby. I knew what the chromosomes or what the, um, the, the sonogram picture showed in terms of what the child was. But gender is the ways that we express ideas about masculinity and femininity. They're separate from sex of male and female. And while there's places where it crosses over where you can run into difficulty, the basic way is that sex is chromosomal, it's uh, body expression um, and physical, and gender is the way that we express or enact masculinity or femininity. So my children's gender does not appear until they can start making choices for themselves and choose what they want to wear and what they want to play with. Because the thing about gender also is that it is socially constructed. And so we tend to assume or think about boys as playing with cars and playing with, you know, certain kinds of toys. And those are boys toys and therefore masculine and girls you know, gravitating toward dolls and and other things that are maybe pink and those are girls' toys and they are coded as feminine even in the toy store still. Um, And so war in general has been heavily, heavily coded as masculine and women's roles within war have been heavily coded as feminine, regardless of what they're doing, because masculinity and femininity can change over time. Uh, The meanings that we ascribe to actions to traits, to all of that, it, it changes. Um, and there are, in fact, multiple kinds of masculinity and multiple kinds of femininity. And so I imagine we'll talk about that as this podcast goes on. 
That's great, Amy. Um, I, the only thing I would add to that is on the history, kind of how historians have, have dealt with this over time. Um, you know, there are certain scholars that have been kind of calling on us to, to look at, to, to use gender as a way to understand militaries, militarization, war. Um, I always go back to the scholar Cynthia Enlow, who has been writing about these issues for 40, more than 40 years. I mean, since the early 1980s, she was really foundational for my thinking. Um, you know, she asks questions about you know, one of her central questions of research is, um, is where are the women? You know, we're talking about conflict, we're talking about international diplomacy, these kinds of things that historians have tended to see as male spaces and male activities. Enloe has been tell, asking us to go beyond that and, you know, where are the women? And as part of that, it's also to try and understand why are we only talking about men? You know, why have we gendered these spaces um, male? Uh, and I would, and I, I think that in the definitely in the last twenty years, twenty five in the last twenty five years, um, historians of military issues and of war have taken up Cynthia Enlow's call and have been trying to answer those questions. You know, where are women? Why have why are why is fighting gendered male? You know, why do we say you know war will make boys into men? You know, why what does that mean about broader social and cultural um, norms and those sorts of things. So I do think that there's been a lot of scholarship in the last 20 to 25 years that has tried to broaden how we understand who it is that fights, why, who is affected by conflict, how, you know, and those sorts of sorts of issues. Yeah, thank you. I, Amy, I want to pick up on, on something that you said that is a complex thing to maybe get <laughs> some people to get their heads around, which is, you said that masculinity and femininity femininity change over time. Mm -hmm. When you say that, what, what can you maybe give an example or expand on that a little bit? Sure. So to I, I'm picking examples that are, are perhaps accessible as opposed to necessarily related to war. Um, but if you think about um, how traditional notions of femininity, right? Um, motherly, uh, caretaking, um, you know, uh, chaste, non-sexual, like going back to the turn of the century, if you think about like women in their, in their dresses and their corsets and don't show an ankle and all of that, right? The way that women were understood in that moment of time by doctors, by scientists, by themselves <laughs> in many cases, is that this is what women were naturally meant to do. Women were meant to be mothers. They were meant to be caretakers. They were not meant to be politicians. They were not meant to be out in the public sphere. They were not meant to be the breadwinners for the family. Um, and these were constructions that were put forth in the media of the time. There was an expectation around what women should do. It's not necessarily the same as what women actually did, but it was the expectation of what they should do. And that was considered femininity. And then there's this period of time through the early 20th century where activists basically said, okay, that's true. Women are caretakers. Women are the ones who are supposed to, you know, care for children. So shouldn't they be doctors? 
Shouldn't they be politicians who can clean up the cities and get sewers so that we stop having disease run rampant through our cities, right? And that they were literally building on this idea of femininity to create space for themselves within the public sphere. And what we've seen over the course of the 20th century is that ideas about femininity, about what women can do, have changed pretty significantly. So there are way fewer people today who are arguing that um, women cannot or should not be fill in the blank, right? Masculinity has also undergone change over time. Um, It's not as clear sometimes because I think as Heather has pointed out, one of the things that happens is that as we talk about gender, we tend to talk about femininity. We tend to talk about women as though men have no gender, right? They're the norm, the the one that everyone else who isn't them sort of builds around. And so you can talk about femininity, you can talk about non-binary gender, but people don't have a tendency to talk about masculinity in quite the same way. So Heather, you were talking about how uh, the military can make boys into men. And I'm just wondering, uh, is there an example or an instance that comes to mind when you're thinking about this in the course of U.S. war in the 20th century? Well, actually, you know, there's something that always comes to mind with for me on this question is the pushback against that. And I I think this we're probably jumping ahead with this, but this is just what I always think about when I think of that phrase war makes boys into men is um, I think about the GI and veteran anti-war movement during the Vietnam war. And something that was really surprising to me that I found in doing research on that were soldier, male soldiers and male veterans talking about how that was something that they were sold as children. And when they actually went to war, they didn't feel like they became men. They feel, they felt like they were dehumanized they, as they, you know, they were, you know, growing into adults and some of them had girlfriends or wives, they, it it didn't make sense to them that they were supposed to kill people to feel like a man. Um, And so that's something that I always think about when I think about this, this issue or this idea that military service and fighting in war is, is going to make you a man, that those who actually did it, you know, saying actually, you know, that's, that's not true. It didn't make us feel like, um, like men at all. But, you know, so thinking back to a, um, a, a time in, in U.S. history where we could try to understand why that, um, that, that, where, how, where that idea came about. Um, in the late 19th century, kind of after, so after the U.S. Civil War generation, um, 
there were conversations that like turned the 20th century conversations about American men kind of becoming soft. You know, they, they haven't had a war to fight. Um, and this is the era of the Spanish American, Spanish American war in 1898. Um, and you know, so this idea that, okay, men, they don't have war to fight. Um, they're under the, the, the control of their mothers and, you know, increasingly by their teachers and teaching is becoming a, um, more of a, I don't know, feminine profession, you know, kind of some of the things that Amy was talking about as far as gendering um, professions. Um, but this idea that, well, okay, if we don't give our young boys some kind of fight to have, they're going to become soft. And by extension, that means the U.S. is becoming soft. So there's this interesting connection between gender and power that underlies um, the, the, the conceptualization of war as something you do to show your manhood, to show your strength and all of that. But this really is ultimately it's tied to projections of American power. That's really interesting, Heather. I, you know, you brought up earlier, we're focusing on U.S. history, but this is one of those moments when I think it's maybe worth uh, looking at a, a, maybe even a slightly broader context. You know, I think of Britain uh, at this period, right? So even as the uh, U.S. is fighting the Spanish in Cuba and, and Philippines, the British are in South Africa fighting the Boer War, and they're saying very similar things. And they're imagining that their nation is tied up in the masculinity of their soldiers. And uh, there's this language is also wrapped up in ideas about racial science of the time as well. So um, the strength of the soldiers, the physicality of the soldiers, the health of the soldiers is tied to the health of Britain as a nation and as a, a nation in a social Darwinistic sense that is in competition with other nations. So this idea of the ideal man, uh, the masculine soldier, is blown up to the national level and then infused with this racial science. And I'm wondering if uh, Heather or Amy, if you see this in uh, the U.S. as well. Well, you know, this is Theodore Roosevelt. Everything that you're saying is the, this is exactly what he was saying in at the turn of the 20th century. And you know, he's he's his kind of the the racial side of this is interesting coming from him. Um, you know, he he had a speech where he said something to the effect of, "If the United States isn't proactive in asserting itself in the world and taking control and and, and that." that some other nation is going to do it. And the, I don't remember the exact language that he used, but it was something to the effect of, you know, a more, a, a more brutal nation or, or this, which it, the, the language definitely had kind of coded racial undertones there. Um, but, you know, in, in the, in the Russo Japanese war, for example, I mean, he, Theodore Roosevelt really kind of admired the Japanese in that, in which, I think, you know, we could go deeply into the, the, the racial context there, but I think that that kind of, I don't know that it challenges the, the, the racial attitudes of the time, but it is kind of an interesting, I don't know, way that he was thinking about who it is in the world that's masculine. And I think that speaks to the idea of multiple masculinities that I mentioned earlier, because in Roosevelt's construction, war in the Russo-Japanese war made the Japanese men 
they were excellent fighters in his perspective. They made good decisions in his perspective, but they still were not white men. Um, and so they were men, but they weren't the same men. And so sort of the British American vision of a white man soldier was still um, better as far as Roosevelt was concerned. And we saw that too, when, when he took the Rough Riders down to Cuba, he, there were black units there that fought with his Rough Riders. Um, and Roosevelt's ideas about these men, he thought that they, uh, at the time anyway, he said that they had um, conducted themselves well, that they had fought bravely, that they had um, put themselves forward as men and tough soldiers. But over time, he actually began to talk more negatively about that group um, because the racial uh, needs of the moment in his particular political campaign changed. So he was sort of ranking these men, uh, not only by what they accomplished, but also by who they were and putting those different types of masculinity into a hierarchy and, and setting them against each other. Yeah. And I think that, that issue of the, um, I just want to jump in really quick. The, the idea of multiple masculinities, I think is really important. You know, Amy said earlier in her comments that historians have tended to, when we look at gender, although this, you know, we're, this is changing thanks in part to awesome work like Amy's, um, think about women and gender, you know, let's, let's, let's unpack, femininity and how we've applied that to women. Um, but the idea of multiple masculinities is so important here. And it's why it, it, it can help us understand why there was a time when black men were segregated into kind of menial units in the U S military or why until 2010, 2011 openly gay men couldn't serve in the U S military. So I think the the idea of multiple masculinities, multiple masculinities is so crucial here. So I just wanted to amplify that. And thinking about how those ideals are constructed, right? I think if listeners think back to all the war movies that they've watched over any period of time, right? Um, I'm thinking about multiple John Wayne movies in which John Wayne is sort of his character is the ideal masculine fighter and there's some other character who is younger who is a little bit more questioning of the military and its goals and then over the course of the movie through combat <laughs> that character sort of grows into himself um but even just think about the difference between uh, the first Rambo movie and the second Rambo movie. Um, you know, the first one, if you watch it, is very much a, a out of the moment of this immediate post-Vietnam era whereby war destroys men, right? That was one of the cultural things that came out of the Vietnam War is that a lot of people began questioning a lot of the messages they'd been sent, as Heather mentioned a little while ago. Um, and that shows up in the first Rambo movie. But by the second one, the cultural moment had shifted and there was this sort of attempt to reclaim that war as a victory. And you can see that even in, you know, Sylvester, uh, Stallone's body, um, how he bulks up in terms of the messaging with regard to, uh, you know, the, the strength and toughness and heroism of the soldier who had been um, betrayed by the more feminized technocratic government, um, you know, represented by the guys behind the scenes in front of the computers. 
Um, so you can think about how the messaging in movies, you know, in stories, in advertisements, in television, in the way that we speak about the way that so- who soldiers are and what they do, all of that creates messaging um, that becomes overwhelming at a certain point. And that's how we end up constructing these ideals. And those ideals do change over time. I just mentioned how in that immediate post-Vietnam era, there's a lot more room for questioning of, of what war does and whether it's beneficial and, and how it can actually be harmful. Um, but even over time, I think as we were alluding uh, a, a minute ago, right, ideas around race and masculinity have certainly changed Oh, sorry, not ideas, ideals, right? Again, I want to I want to emphasize that there's the messaging and the construction of ideals, and then there's actually what people do, and that's a lot more varied. Yeah, and speaking of uh, some of these things, so Amy, uh, you are alluding, I think, to some extent here in the way that cultural objects, in, in this case film that you're talking about, can be used as a form of maybe propaganda, but also as a way for expressing concerns or problematizing experience. And, you know, thinking about propaganda and cultural exchange and, and, and the creation of ideals through these objects, I'm just wondering, uh, do you... Amy and Heather see a change in how people are being maybe recruited into these wars over the course of the 20th century. I know, Amy, I'm thinking specifically about your work on on the draft here, um, but I'm also thinking about posters from World War One uh, and uh, you know posters from World War Two on into the future, um, and we end up with things like. First Blood and and Rambo and things like this in the wake of Vietnam. So I'm just wondering if you see how the cultural forms in which ideals are created through recruitment change over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Listeners can literally go Google propaganda posters, World War I, World War II. (laughs) Um, There are a few things that, that come out in those. Both from both of those eras in the United States and Britain, the posters are overwhelmingly playing on potential soldiers' visions of who they want to be and masculinity and what the military can do for them, as well as what their responsibilities to the nation are during a time of war, right? In terms of citizenship, in terms of um, helping their nation, helping particularly their families, um, saving women and children, um, all of that. And you can see that. But there are differences between the World War I posters and the World War II posters. The men in the World War II posters have a tendency to be more muscularly developed. Um, And there is some scholarship that talks about this, particularly in the American context. Um, Christina Jarvis's The Male Body at War, talking about how coming out of the Great Depression era, when one, people were in fact undernourished, but also two, the U.S. had this image of itself as being harmed, being weak because of the depression, because of unemployment, because men couldn't be breadwinners, of trying to reconstruct the masculine image of the nation 
during World War II. So you can see a change over time there. Um, and I think you can also see very clear change over time as you shift from a military based on a draft to an all-volunteer force. And Beth Bailey has written about this um, in her book, America's Army. Um, you know, be all you can be, which has just returned as the Army slogan, was the most uh, popular, successful recruitment slogan that the Army has had over the last 50 years, um, which is partially about, uh, you know, physical growth in the military, but it's also about finding a skill, finding a job, finding, um, you know, finding yourself in, in, in different ways than through combat. These are not ads that highlight combat. They highlight job skills. They highlight personal growth. Um, so there, there absolutely is change over time because these are reflections of the moment in which they're created and what is going to appeal to young people. Uh, now it is men and women, but what is going to appeal to them to want to choose to sign on the dotted line and enlist? I'll just add to that um, as far as women in the kind of the Cold War era, um, not just Vietnam, but, but post-World War II in general, uh, a lot of the, the recruitment for the Women's Army Corps, the, the kind of women's services, branches of the service, um, uh, focused on things like the opportunity to travel, the opportunity to potentially meet your future husband. Um, but the, you know, the chance to kind of get out and do some things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do in your hometown for a while until you eventually meet that husband and settle down. Um, and so, and that, that, con, that, that uh, recruitment strategy I always found interesting thinking about the Vietnam War where you, I mean, and, and that goes on into the, you know, late 60s where uh, when we have kind of widespread American skepticism, if not opposition to the Vietnam War, this idea that women could, had this, you know, could use the military as a way to um, have these new experiences and travel and all of this uh, while... Americans at large are saying, you know, we don't, this is not something that we necessarily buy into anymore. Yeah, Heather, you mentioned earlier in the episode that when we talk about war, we tend to default to the history of men in war. And what you're saying right now is, of course, bringing to the fore the importance of, of women in war and uh, their their own experience of gender in war. And I'm just wondering maybe if you could tell us a little bit about changing involvement of women in war over the 20th century and the ways that um, gender was constructed in, in that process as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gender was central to uh, kind of defining what how what women would do, American women would do in war as they're mobilized both by the military and by organizations like the Red Cross, um, really to get public buy-in for the creation of things like the Women's Army Corps. So, for example, in World War II, um, war planners are realizing that they they're they're running low on manpower. There's a manpower shortage, and so they need to figure out ways that they can free up men for combat. And one of the solutions to that is to create um, things like the Women's Army Corps, uh, which is the, uh, uh, the Women's Auxiliary, I guess that's auxiliary is not the right word, but 
Uh, I think it's, in fact, it was the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps when it was originally created um, in 1942. But as a way to open up non-combat jobs for women. Um, when the Women's Army Corps was created and the, the promotional materials about it were created, there was an emphasis on the fact that this would not challenge traditional notions of femininity. The, the women are wearing, their, their uniforms are, are dresses, and skirts, they're wearing high heels. Um, they're not going into combat. This is a temporary way that women can help the war effort. Um, this isn't mobilizing women the way that men are mobilized for combat. Um, and that construction of the Women's Army Corps, uh, the, that gendered construction of the Women's Army Corps really continues into the Vietnam War era. Um, and and I, I interv I've interviewed um, Women's Army Corps veterans from Vietnam who've talked about the the, the unpractical nature of that gender construction, meaning I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing pantyhose and heels, but I'm, you know, on a military base in Vietnam. And that's just, you know, I need to be wearing fatigues and boots and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I, I also got that same reaction from women that I've interviewed who served in um, a Red Cross program called Supplemental Recreational Activities Overseas. Um, their nickname is Donut Dollies, and some of the listeners may have have heard of that because there've been some there's been work done on um, the Donut Dollies, written about it, um, documentary about it. But that that program was actually goes back to World War One and World War Two. The Red Cross would send uh, women to serve coffee and donuts to soldiers. Um, and so in Korea and Vietnam, um, the Red the the U.S. Department of Defense asked the Red Cross to send. Uh, donut dollies to both of those wars to um, kind of do morale boosting activities with American soldiers like serving coffee and donuts or organizing games on posts or, or bases, um, um, other kinds of sing-along activities and these sorts of things. The idea is to kind of take the soldier's mind off of the what they're going through um, in war, but they, the Red Cross was very uh, um, strict about how the donut dollies were meant to look and act. So they were supposed to be feminine, but not sexual. Amy mentioned this kind of the, 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 the um, femininity not being sexualized. Um, so no red lipstick, for example, they had to wear these, they were, their uniforms were powder blue dresses um, you know, they were supposed to wear their hair kind of in a ponytail or in sort of a way to make them look like the girl next door. Um, and so that that those gender constructions were central to how women in that program were meant to act and meant to look. And that affected how they did their jobs. Thank you so much for that. That's that's really interesting. I'm in thinking about the experience of women in war uh this has come up in a couple of other episodes where we've done reading about nurses for example and their experience of war and trauma that they experienced through war and uh, we also read uh, texts from women who fought uh, for uh, north vietnam uh, or, or served as nurses in north vietnam and their experiences and i'm just wondering the U.S. soldiers' perceptions of women in Vietnam working on, you know, 
participating on both sides. So maybe as nurses on the U.S. side, uh, but also fighting against women who were uh, uh, part of the North Vietnam forces. Do the U.S. soldiers have a sense of the multiple femininities that are emerging um, from their experiences on the ground? Um, I I don't know as far as, you know, soldiers thinking about those multiple femininities. Um, I don't know, maybe Amy might have some, some anecdotes on that. I do know that in the Vietnam context, American soldiers were aware that um, the National Liberation Front, North Vietnamese, um, had women fighting, and so that women were fighting against them. And that, because of that, that fed into these um, GI soldier myths about Vietnamese women being dangerous. So there's this kind of pop culture, sort of underground literature and myth-making among um soldiers about how Vietnamese women can harm them. And that often comes out through, you know, these women are going to harm us sexually. So a Vietnamese prostitute who is actually trying to kill us or maim us, you know, there are really kind of graphic um, myths about Vietnamese women who would put things inside of their vaginas, for example, as a way to, to maim an American man's manhood. And that became part of kind of Vietnam American soldier myth-making during the Vietnam War about the dangerous nature um, of Vietnamese women. Now, there also were um, uh, legends and myths about Vietnamese women fighters. There was a, a, a very young woman, she's a teenager, and she was 19 when she died, named Le Thi Hong Gum, who was a fighter with the National Liberation Front, or what Americans you know called the Viet Cong, the National Liberation Front, um, the PLAF, the People's Liberation Armed Forces, Vietnam, um, who was known to be this sniper who had shot down an American helicopter, and she was a um, she was a great shot, and American soldiers knew about her too. She died fighting, um, and so she was made into myth in, in Vietnam. But American soldiers knew about her too, so they were aware that it wasn't you know the dangerous quote unquote dangerous Vietnamese woman wasn't just someone who was trying to harm them sexually, but actually a fighter. And I, I think that speaks to the racial hierarchy that a lot of Americans carried with them. And we just talked a little bit about the history of where that came from. I doubt if you walked up to a soldier at any fire base and said, hey, do you know about multiple femininities? They would be like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Let's talk about multiple femininities. But I do think that it is likely that if you ask them about the difference between American women and this idea of the girl next door and the chaste donut dolly, um, who maybe they might like to date versus, you know, a, a North Vietnamese woman or a South Vietnamese woman, um, they would talk to you about the differences because their perception most likely was that Asian women were supposed to be sexually available, but they were also dangerous and unknowable and therefore somehow different from white American women. And so that meant that they could be, um, sexual partners, but also that they were somewhat dangerous, but also that they could be fighters in a way that American women at that moment were not understood to be. Um, you know, and talking about change over time, uh, this is shifting gears slightly, but if you think about recruiting for American women of, of all races today in the United States, right, now that all combat positions are open to women, 
um, it's still hard and questionable, right? It is definite change over time. You compare a recruitment ad from the 1950s, which is very much going to play up a certain kind of femininity with, you know, hairsprayed hair and skirts and heavy makeup and all of the rest of it compared to a recruitment ad for women today is going to look very, very different with women in fatigues and combat boots and hair, you know, up and under a cap and less makeup and whatnot. But we're still not seeing as many images of women in actual combat. They may be shown with weapons, but it's in training or in silhouette or, um, or maybe in a humanitarian mission. But I, I recently saw a presentation at the annual conference of society of military historians, or sorry, the society for military history, but you know, looking at this stuff, actually making the comparisons in marine recruitment ads. Um, the question then becomes, for women to succeed in the military today, do they have to develop their masculine traits and be seen as one of the boys? Are they developing their own martial femininity that's somehow different from civilian ideals of femininity? Um, or is it something else? Right? So all of these different discussions talk about these these hierarchies and these multiple ways of constructing gender. So we've spent a lot of time uh, over the last 40 minutes or so talking about uh, gen, uh, gender ideals and their difference between um, ideal and experience uh, and, 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 and how people performed uh, gender. I'm just wondering, you know, as we're getting a little closer, maybe talking about more contemporary events in the military. Um, what we haven't talked about, for example, are transgender individuals and their participation in the military. And I'm just wondering if either of you have uh, can, can talk about the history of transgender individuals uh, in the military, even if we're talking about a very, a very contemporary history. Um, yeah, I, uh, so I actually, I, I served on, um, I served as an, as an expert witness on a case that was brought, uh, challenging, uh, then president Donald Trump's, uh, banning of transgender, open transgender service. Uh, so, uh, former president Barack Obama had, had made it legal for transgender people to serve openly in the U S military and then when Trump became president, he reversed that, which to my knowledge is that was the only, the only case of kind of a, of a, of a president resegregating a group that had been um, kind of, for lack of a better word, integrated into a, an institution or context. Um, but in any case, so then there were a group of transgender service personnel, um, either people who had been in the military or those who had tried to enlist um, and then were were denied because of the the ban uh, against that legislation um, you know that it and so and then the the, the case actually you know thankfully it, it, it went away because um, uh, President Biden then reversed Trump's uh, uh, reversal of of President Obama's um, opening of transgender service to um, to, to serve openly. I, I think one of the big issues that, that is discussed in that context is whether the military should provide gender affirming care to service personnel. So there are, 
those who will say, yes, um, a transgender, transgender Americans can serve openly in the U.S. military, but does the military have a response, responsibility to provide gender-affirming care for those individuals, which you know, speaks to broader issues about what the military provides for its, its members, which is a lot of things. Um, you know, it can, one of the largest social welfare uh, uh, institutions in the country. Uh, but that's, that's one of the issues that, that came up a lot for me as I was um, serving on this case that I, that I heard people talk about is, is whether the military should or should not provide gender affirming care for transgender individuals. And I think it's tied also to, to ideas about sexuality and about deviance that go back a long way. Um, so for example, same sex sex has always happened in military contexts, um, but it was uh, the behavior was frowned upon and there are examples of you know sting operations happening during the World War I era to get men who had sex with other men out of the military, but it was the behavior itself. And then ideas about the meaning of same-sex sex shift um, around World War II, it becomes more psychologized basically. And so it becomes the tendency or the belief that someone might have sex with someone of the same sex as them. Um, and that leads to folks being removed from the military. Um, the GI Bill at the end of World War II is in fact the first piece of federal legislation that uh, addresses directly people who are homosexual. Um, and so that's an interesting connection, I think. Um, but at that point in time, the idea of transgender people didn't exist in the same way. There were, of course, people who dressed differently from their biological sex or behaved differently, but the categories that we tend to use today didn't yet exist. They were in the process of being formed through the 1950s. So, you know, all of that is to say that there's a history here that policymakers are still mired in as they're trying to figure out what to do with people who are quote unquote deviant from the norm. Um, ideas around homosexuality are shifting, but those around people who are trans are I think, you know, a step or two behind with regard to change over time. Um, for example, selective service registration, trans women who are born biologically male are required to register with selective service still when they turn 18, but trans men who are men in their everyday lives and the way that they, um, you know, uh, uh, appear to the world are not. <laughs> so the laws, policies, all of it, it's all in, still in flux. Well, this, this seems like a, 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 a good place to end uh, because it opens up questions for our next season of this show that I think are really worthy of pursuing. So Heather and Amy, I want to thank you both for joining us for the podcast. It's been great to have you both involved in this program in different capacities over the last six months or so. And I, I do hope you might consider coming back for a future podcast. Definitely. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'd love to. This was great, Jason. I really appreciate it. It's been great being part of it. 
Thanks for listening to Justice and War in American History. Please stay tuned for our next episode, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or through any of your favorite podcast providers. Please be sure to rate the podcast and to be in touch with us if you have any questions or feedback. You can find more information about this podcast and the broader Justice and War Project at justiceandwarseminar.org. If you are a veteran or concerned about a veteran who is experiencing a mental health crisis, there is 24-hour support through the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Dial 988 and press 1 or text at 838-255. More information on support from the VA, visit mentalhealth.va.gov. And, as always, special thanks to the National Endowment for the Humanities for making this project possible. Thank you.